All right, we'll get into page 18 and lesson 5 in just a moment. want to just make a few announcements, and one is that after we are finished at noon today, any men who are willing to stick around for just a few minutes to help clear uh, most or all of the chairs out of this room, stack them and move them to the side, that's for the Pinewood Derby that we have on Wednesday for our community kids. That's going to take place in here, so the chairs have to get moved. So at the end of our time, guys, I'll try to remind you of that, but if any of you can stay around for that, then John Roberts is going to lead that for us. John hangs out back in our sound booth, uh, also known as the, the no, he's one of the noisemakers. That was what, that was what Jean Orsargas called those guys. She couldn't think of what they're called, and she said, those noisemakers back there. I thought that was the ensemble with the, with the noisemakers, but she called those guys the noisemakers. So help with the chairs. Also, coming up next month for the four Sundays in June, we have our periodic newcomers orientation. So as the name suggests, that is for those who are new to our church, and it's an orientation to our church. It's informational only. It doesn't obligate you to anything, and you have my word that we don't follow up with you and hassle you after you've attended that. So it strictly gives you the information about who we are, where we come from, what we believe, why we do things the way we do, where we hope to go in the future. So if you're new here and you don't have a church home, I'd encourage you to set aside those four weeks. It's during this hour. So during this hour, if you take that class, you would not be in this room, but rather you'd be in one of our adult classrooms across the hall, and I lead that for those four weeks. We give you a booklet of material that we go through, and in that setting, you can ask any questions that you might have about our church as well. So that'll be June uh, 7, 14, 21, and 28, so perhaps mark that. And then we have baptism, our next baptism coming up in July, July the 19th, the evening, uh, early evening of July the 19th. Those of you that have not been baptized need to be. Jesus commands that of his followers. If you don't know whether you've been baptized or you don't know what the significance of that is or you don't know if you've been baptized the way the Bible describes, uh, the way the Bible describes and the only way that baptism ever took place actually in the Bible is uh, by what's called immersion. You actually get dunked in water and brought back up to signify the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and that you believe in that and you're making a public identification with that. So if that's never happened with you, it needs to. I'd love to sit down with you, talk about that, answer any questions you might have about it, but we need to do that soon. Our next baptism is on July the 19th, so see me even before you leave today. We could set aside, set aside a time to get, a, get together and talk about that. All right, we are in a series, the title of which is on the screen, you see, Why You Can Trust the Bible. This is lesson five on page number 18, and quickly in the first four lessons, we have looked at the necessity of revelation. That was the first lesson, the necessity of revelation. And the idea there is, in order for us to know where we've come from, who we are, who God is, and what his purposes and designs are, God has to make that known. That's what the word revelation means. And that's then what I mean in lesson one by the necessity of revelation. It is necessary in order for us to know those things, for God to reveal them, for God to make them known. And then lesson two was the necessity of scripture, that God has not only revealed, made known, but God has also inscripturated what he has revealed. He has written it down. And that has a number of benefits to it, not least that it preserves God's revelation from one generation to the next. Uh, We talked a little bit about the origin of the Bible and how it came to us. 
So God has met this need of revelation, and then he has written down what he has revealed. And then a couple of weeks ago, we began to look at the unique features of Scripture, of the Bible. And the first of those unique features was that the Bible is full of predictive prophecy, that in great detail, the Bible predicts many years before an an event occurs uh, how it's going to occur and how it's going to turn out. And we gave a number of examples of those. Last week, we focused in on the Bible's predictions regarding the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and the fact that the first part of your Bible, written hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, actually predicted his arrival, where he would be born, the events of his life and and death, and even the time of his death in Daniel chapter 9. So in those, these four lessons, the necessity of revelation, the necessity of that revelation being written down, the uniqueness of the revelation that is in Scripture in its predictive prophecy and focused upon the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And now today, page 18, you see at the top, science and the Bible. Science and the Bible. Because in order for someone to trust the Bible, they have to have at least a, a rudimentary understanding of how the Bible relates to, to science and probably have some of the notions that you've been taught about the Bible and, and science uh, altered a bit because there's a good bit of misinformation about uh, what the Bible teaches as it relates to, as it relates to science. So we want to cover that then in today's lesson. And we say on page 18, worldview. It depends on how you, how you look at it. A worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It is a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. So the first thing you need to understand about the relationship between the Bible and science is that the differences between those who believe in an evolutionary origin of the the universe and of humanity and those who believe that it is the product of the special creation of God. The difference between those two is not the facts. It is the way one views those facts. That is, we all have the same set of facts. And, you know, you've heard the saying, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but nobody's entitled to their own facts. And we don't have our own set of facts. And the evolutionists do not have their own set of facts. We all have the same facts. So the dispute is not about what we're looking that the fact that we're looking at particular fossils, for example, but rather how it is we look at those. And how we look at those depends on the worldview that we bring to the task. Everybody has a view of the world. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has, in that definition, a way of viewing or interpreting reality. Everybody has this framework through which they make sense of the data of life in the world. So everybody's looking at the same fossils, but they're not looking at them the same way. They don't come to them with the same assumptions. Now, what are those assumptions to which we come to the data uh, with? And that is, uh, that is on page 18, uh, the first of those assumptions, a broad category, is something called naturalism, naturalism. It's based, we say here, on the assumption that the material world is all there is, or at least all that can be known. Therefore, explanations must be limited to natural natural phenomena. And so, as I say, the issue is not the facts. It is that 
I come to the data already with the idea that the only explanations that can be given given will be limited to natural phenomena. So the idea that there could have been a supernatural being here prior to the beginning is not is not even entertained. Now, it's not entertained because there isn't evidence of that. It's entertained because the worldview rules, rules that interpretation out. That's the approach that uh, scientists, many scientists take, because they're bringing a naturalistic worldview to, the, to the, their look at the data. Look at the second paragraph. One who adheres to naturalism is bound to subscribe to some form of evolution. There's no other option. Richard Dawkins, a revered evolutionary philosopher and atheist, has said, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But notice the name of his book in which that quote is found, The Blind Watchmaker. And in his book, there is, there is no designer. In fact, he's quite emphatic, there is no designer. But he says, you know, when you look at this stuff, for all the world, it looks like it was designed. But then he goes on in his book to tell you all the reasons why he believes it's not designed. Now, if it looks like it was designed, why does he rule out that it could have been designed? Because he comes to the evidence with a worldview, an a priori, that is, before you look at anything, prior to, he has assumptions that he makes. Likewise, middle of that paragraph, biologist Francis Crick writes, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Now, why must they constantly keep that in mind? Because for all the world, it looks like it was designed. So in order for you to play out and prove and support the worldview that you bring to the task, in order for you to do that, you've got you to get that out of your mind. So you must constantly remind yourself that it was not designed, even though for all the world it looks that way. Last couple of sentences there. These statements betray the fact that evolution is necessitated by philosophical naturalism. The foundation of this worldview is, without question, philosophical and even religious. Now, every worldview, next paragraph, has to begin somewhere, has to begin with a theory of how the universe began. Naturalism begins with the fundamental assumption that the forces of nature alone are adequate to explain everything that exists. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Naturalists say that in the beginning were the particles, along with blind, purposeless, natural laws. That nature, now notice the word nature is capitalized there. Nature created the universe out of nothing. That nature formed our planet with its unique ability to support life. That nature drew together the chemicals that formed the first living cell. And naturalism says that nature acted through Darwinian mechanisms to evolve complex life forms and finally human beings with the marvels of consciousness and intelligence. Now, that's capitalized because we're trying to show and will continue to show as we go on that this is actually a religious assumption that one brings to the task of analyzing the data that's before him, him or her. Bottom of page 18, naturalism, like supernaturalism, begins with premises that cannot be tested empirically. Now, please get that. They both begin with premises that cannot be tested empirically. In the beginning, God. How am I going to, how am I going to test that? But how are you going to test, for example, the late Carl Sagan's 
uh, statement that nature is all that is, quote, all that is or ever was or ever will be. Well, how do you know that? And here's the answer. You don't. You can't prove that scientifically. That's a statement that Carl Sagan makes. And then based upon that belief statement, he proceeds to then interpret the data that that he sees. So naturalism, like supernaturalism, begins with premises that cannot be tested empirically. This statement that all, nature is all that is, ever was, or ever will be, last line, is not a scientific statement, for there's no conceivable way that it could be tested. In fact, it is philosophy. So just stop there for a moment, and I just want you to make sure you get this before we move on. That the contest is not between between uh, creationists and a different science and evolutionists who have a different science. We all have the same science. We all have the same facts. The issue is a difference between the assumptions you bring to looking at those facts. And everybody adopts a worldview before, prior to looking at the facts, and that influences the way they interpret those facts. Now, Carl Sagan quoted on page 18 that the universe is all that is, was, and ever will be, which he can't prove. But based on that assumption now, he was, he's now dead, but he was a religious devotee to the God nature. And on page 19, we show that. Carl Sagan is an example. As much as anyone else, it was Sagan who popularized the naturalistic worldview and entrenched it firmly in the mind of the average American. Now, how did he do that? Some of you know that for many years he had a program on uh, PBS, public broadcasting, partially taxpayer-funded public broadcasting, called Cosmos. And he wrote a book and had a a series uh, called that as, as well. And in it he has that the universe is all that is, was, and and ever will be. But he popularized then, through those mechanisms, through those media, the naturalistic worldview and entrenched it firmly in the mind of the average American. He was, in in effect, a televangelist for naturalism, a philosophy he held with religious fervor. And logically so, for whatever you take as the starting point of your worldview functions, in effect, as your religion. So where do you start? Well, we start with God. Where do you start, Carl? I start with with nature, with a capital N. And where did nature with a capital N come from? You you can't tell me, can you? If you ask me the question, where did God come from, I can't can't tell you either. So we're both in the same spot. Now we have to analyze the data, and we're going to analyze the data through the prism, through the filter of our intentionally adopted worldviews. Now let's show how that affects then Carl Sagan. Next paragraph. His trademark phrase, the cosmos, is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Here he's capitalizing on Christian worship. For centuries, Christians have sung the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Sagan is clearly offering a substitute worship, that is liturgy, a cadence to the cosmos. The sheer fact that he capitalizes the word word cosmos, just as religious believers capitalize the word God, is a dead giveaway that he's been gripped by religious fervor. So, you know, we get the idea that you've got this dispassionate, just analytic guy like Carl Sagan, and then there's crazy people like us who are religious. 
And he is every bit as religious and devoted to his religion, but his religion is naturalism. In his television program, middle of that page, third paragraph, in books, he makes it clear he has no use for the transcendent creator revealed in the Bible. The cosmos is his God, his deity. In one of his many best-selling books, he mockingly describes the Christian God as, quote, an outsized, light-skinned male with a long white beard sitting on a throne somewhere up there in the sky, busily tallying the the, the fall of every sparrow. Sagan regards the cosmos as the only self-existing eternal entity. A universe that is infinitely old requires no creator. Now, let me just stop there. In our series in the opening chapters of Genesis, which we will resume next Sunday, uh, we've had occasion to look at that very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and and the earth. And in that, we've of necessity delved a little bit into uh, some scientific evidence that support that a priori, premise that we come to the evidence with. And one of those is, since the time of Sagan, science has determined, one, that there absolutely was a beginning to the universe. So the idea that the universe uh, that the universe has always existed is something that science refutes uh, now. So the universe had a beginning, science says. So were Sagan still around, he'd have to, he'd have to grapple with the fact that there is, in fact, a, a beginning, and we all agree now that there was a beginning. Now, how that, what was there in the beginning or who was there in the beginning is a different story, but that the universe itself had a beginning is agreed by, is agreed by all. Further, I sought to show that the universe was not created from within the universe, but rather it was started from outside of space, the universe as we know it. So what is the explanation for who or what was outside this expanding, now expanding universe that we have that got it started, or in our words, created it? But this is what Sagan believed, that a a universe that is infinitely old. Well, nobody believes in a universe that is infinitely old. Everybody says the universe had a beginning. And then the fourth paragraph, on point after point, Sagan offers a naturalistic substitute for traditional religion. While Christianity teaches that we're children of God, he says, quote, we are in the most profound sense children of the cosmos, again, capital C, for it is the cosmos that gave us birth and daily sustains us. In a passage that's almost certainly autobiographical, he hints that the astronomer's urge to explore the cosmos is motivated by a mystical recognition that the chemicals in our bodies were originally forged in space, that outer space is our origin and our true home. He says some part of our being knows this, know know this is from where we came. We long to return. And the astronomer's, in his words, awe is nothing less than religious worship. Our ancestors worshipped the sun, and they were far from foolish. For if we must worship something, does it not make sense to revere the sun and the stars? Like any religion, his worship of the cosmos prescribes moral duties for its adherents. The cosmos has created human life in its own image. Sagan says, our matter, our form, and much of our character is determined by the deep connection between life and the cosmos. And in return, we have a moral duty to the cosmos. Now, what is that duty? An obligation to survive. An obligation we owe, quote, to that cosmos, ancient and vast, from which we spring. Now, you just just stop and chew on that for a moment. So everybody has to deal with not only 
Where did we come from? But everyone has to deal not only with the fact that I, I am, that, that we exist, that there is something rather than nothing. Everybody's got to deal with that. This is how Sagan deals with it. But then they also have to deal with not only that I am, we are, but that I ought, we ought. There is always the question of ought. What ought I to do? What am I obligated to do? And that all stems from how I got here. He says we got here the way he describes. Therefore, we owe our oughts, our obligations, to nature, to the cosmos. And the best he can come up with, then, is a moral obligation to survive. Now, we say how we got here is owed to to God. And so our oughts, the things we're obligated to do, are given to us by the Creator. So everybody has to have an I am, a theory of existence, and then flowing out of that, a theory of what are my obligations? What ought I to do? And that's the case for, for Sagan for Sagan here. Now, you think about how that works out in practice. And, I, you know, Nazi Germany is an overworked analogy. Everybody uses it for every point they want to make. I understand that. So having said that, let me use it one more time. And, and I, I use it only to give an extreme example to make the point. But, you know, this is within the last century that it occurred that a group of people were focused on as inferior and unworthy of life. And if our obligation is to survive, and you're living in Nazi Germany in the 30s, and you're convinced that the very survival of the nation depends on eradicating a certain group of people, then how does your survival ethic help the Jews? Right? I mean, we got to get rid of you in order for us to survive. I mean, after all, we believe in survival of what? And we're the fittest. We're the master race. Now, this is before Sagan's time, but what does Carl Sagan say to that? That his one moral imperative is that we survive. And when that's your moral imperative, when that is your one overarching ought, then you apply that to real life. There are always going to be some people who are then not worthy of living because they are not part of the fittest who are to survive. Top of page 20. Sagan's worship not only tells us what we ought to do, our ethical obligations, survive, But his worship even tells us how to be saved. Threats to human survival, things like pollution, war, food shortages, they have nothing to do with moral failings. Instead, they result from technological incompetence. He writes, which is hardly surprising since he believes that humanity is still in its evolutionary childhood. As a result, the solutions may well come from more advanced civilizations out there, descending to earth to save us. For this reason, Sagan was an avid supporter of efforts to scan the far reaches of space for radio messages. The receipt, he says, of a single message from space would show that it's possible to live through such technological adolescence, he writes breathlessly. For it would prove that an advanced extraterrestrial race has survived the same stage and gone on to maturity. Now, so he doesn't, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know, he doesn't have any revelation from a God who says, this is how, why I've created you and this is how it's going to end. In the Bible, you have that. 
This is the beginning, and I've told you the, the end from the very beginning. And I've told you how it's all going to end. Sagan doesn't have any of that. So he doesn't know how this thing ends. And he's worried about that. And so he's looking for messages in, from space to show that there are other civilizations that have been able to, to survive. Now, if that isn't a vision of salvation, what is? The cosmos will speak to us. If we're to be spoken to, it's going to be the cosmos. It is there, and it is not silent. Now, those of you that are familiar with Francis Schaeffer, he had a book called He is There and He is Not Silent, speaking of God. He is there and he is not silent. But in for, for Sagan, the cosmos is there and it is not silent. And every human being is a deep, ongoing search for meaning and transcendence, part of the image of God in our very nature. Even if we flee God, the religious imprint remains. Everyone worships Everyone worships some kind of God. Everyone believes in some kind of deity, even if that deity is an impersonal substance like matter, energy, or nature. And that's why the Bible preaches more against idolatry than atheism. You see that? More against idolatry than atheism. Because there aren't any true philosophical atheists. There are only people who dethrone the true and living God and replace him with something else. And that's exactly what Carl Sagan has done here. Naturalism may parade as science, but it is, in fact, religion. And this idea is ubiquitous. It is, it is everywhere. We've had the opportunity three times, I think, in our lives to go to Disney uh, with our girls. Twice with our girls and once before the girls were born. But on all three occasions, we've had a wonderful time. And we're very glad for those opportunities. But one of the things I hate is all the propaganda that Disney spews, all the evolutionary Saganite propaganda. I mean, when you stand in line going through the animal kingdom and you're going to go on a ride, you've got a voice talking to you for the three hours you're waiting to go on this five-minute ride. And this voice is giving you the story about how the universe came to be and what we have to do to manage the universe and all of that. And it is all this evolutionary propaganda. Now, you may be having to tend to your kids, you know, and all of that. I happen to be the father in our home, which means I do really nothing. And so as our girls are messing around for that three-hour wait, Kim's tending to them, and I'm listening to the stuff. So I don't know if you've ever heard the stuff when you go through there, but next time you go to Disney, take a close listen. It is, it is everywhere. All right. So that's one worldview naturalism. But it is a religious view of the world. It doesn't have a supernatural God by its very very definition, but nonetheless it has a replacement for God and a replacement for religious devotion and an ethical obligation just like any other religion including Christianity. Now supernaturalism. The second worldview is supernaturalism. It's founded on the assumption that the material world is not all there is or all that can be known. Therefore, explanations need not be limited to natural phenomena. So here's what that means. Remember I said at the beginning, the difference between a creationist and an evolutionist is not that they have different facts, but rather they look at the same facts differently. And this supernaturalism will at least make you open to alternative explanations other than a naturalistic one. Like looking at some of the same fossils or some of the same evidence and determining that it's in fact evidence of a, a young universe, a young earth. 
and looking at alternative dating methods for looking at the age of a particular fossil. We'll talk about that in just a bit. So the assumption of supernaturalism is that the material world is not all there is or all that can can be known. Middle of that first paragraph, like naturalism, this assumption is something that cannot be proved. It's a starting point, and it defines what kinds of questions may be asked in research. The foundation is also philosophical, and it has religious implications, just like Sagan's does. It's historically the worldview upon which modern science, in fact, was founded. So the real battle is worldview against worldview, religion against religion. On one side is naturalism, claiming the universe is the product of blind, purposeless forces. On the other side stands supernaturalism, pointing to a designer who created with purpose. The Christian worldview begins here and then tells us the identity of the creator. Now let me stop there for a moment. The Christian worldview begins here and then tells us the identity of the creator. Theoretically, it would be possible for someone if they did not have a spiritual malady that the Bible calls sin that predisposes them against the true and living God and as our creator. But let's just put that to one side for a moment. And let's assume that people it were possible for people to be completely neutral. And for someone to just come to the evidence completely in a neutral fashion, then it would be possible for someone to see the evidence and determine, you know, this has been designed and it was purposely created. But I don't know if the being who did that is even still around. I mean, there's evidence that there was such a being around at the time. There's a beginning to the universe and the the evidence of the universe as we look at it is that it was it was designed, and therefore there was a designer and one who was here before the beginning. But is this one still around? Now, that's more of a religious question, and it would be theoretically possible for someone to believe the one and not the other. And that's why that last line on page 20 is important. The Christian worldview begins here. And I'm saying another worldview could begin there as well and not of necessity determine that the identity of the creator is the God of, of the Bible. But if you're, going to, if you're going to believe in the God of the Bible, it is going to have to start there. All right, top of page 21. The Christian worldview begins with the creation, with a deliberate act by a personal being who existed from all eternity. This personal dimension is crucial to understanding creation. Before bringing the world into existence, the creator made a choice, a decision, set out a plan, an intelligent design. According to the Apostle Paul's writings, this design, which gives the world its form and structure, is evident to everyone. He says what may be known about God is plain. Because God has made it plain. Now, how did he do this? In the form and complexity of the world he made. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Even unbelievers know somewhere deep within that God must exist. Therefore, the conclusion in Romans 1 is they are without excuse. Now, when it says they are without excuse, I've mentioned this to you in the past, but I remind you, that phrase, without excuse, is a translation of a Greek word in your New Testament. Your New Testament was written in Greek originally and translated into English and other languages, but not from other languages into other languages into other languages and then English. From Greek to English, from Greek to Italian, from Greek to French. Everybody got that? So we're not the tail end of a bunch of translations, okay? Okay. 
But it was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word that's translated without excuse in Romans 120 is the negative form of this Greek word apologia, apologia. And we get an English word and discipline from it called apologetics. And some of you know that apologetics means a defense. So Christian apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. So this word that's translated without excuse is the negative form of apologia. That is, it's not just without an excuse, it's literally without a defense. So people who deny that there is a, a God having access to the evidence that, in fact, there is a God all around them, God says they are without a defense of that position. And, in fact, as you explore that position, it is defenseless. That Carl Sagan cannot live with the implications of his denial of the true and living God. And others cannot as well. He can't live with those implications. He borrows, he steals from the implications of a biblical worldview. He benefits from that. He benefits from the fact that we have laws and moral oughts that go beyond survival. He benefits from that, but he denies the basis from which those benefits come. And therefore, he is defenseless. Carl Sagan, and I I don't say this flippantly, I don't say it flippantly, but Carl Sagan knows He knows differently today. Carl Sagan knows that there is a true and living God, that in his intellectual sin, intellectual sin, he was predisposed against so that he denied the evidence all around him and brought a a filter and a set of spectacles to the evidence that was preordained for him, by him, that he intentionally chose to look at the evidence in a particular way and in a defenseless, without excuse manner. In other words, Paul teaches that those who look honestly at the world around them should be able to conclude that it was created by an intelligent being. So worldview depends on how you look at it. And there's the evidence, but then there's the way we look at the evidence. Now, in in particular, with regard to the science of origins and where we came from, it depends on how you look back at it. And I want to explain what what I mean on page 21. Recognizing that this debate is at bottom religious and philosophical requires that we ask, where does science fit into the study of origins, and how is science different from religion? The American Journal of Physical Anthropology recommends this strategy. In any confrontation, you should be prepared to show that evolution is scientific, not that it's correct. One need not discuss fossils, intermediate forms, or probabilities of mutation. And let me, these are incidental. Let me just stop there. That's a good thing for you not to discuss if you're an evolutionist. Because the evidence is like not on your side on that. But anyway, let, let us move on. But you don't have to discuss all of that. These are incidental. The question is, what is science and what's religion? Therefore, if you must confront the creationist, we suggest you discuss the nature of science, the kind of knowledge that it, science, can provide, and the kind that it cannot provide. Well, the quotation above illustrates a common misunderstanding about science as it applies to origins. Strictly speaking, the study of origins is not scientific. That is, it is not within the scope of the scientific method which requires that a phenomenon be observable and testable and repeatable. You guys remember that? 
That's the scientific method. That's what we all call the scientific method. Well, now we're talking about origins. Well, guess how many shots you get at origin? <laughs> you get one. How do you repeat origin? And, and who's there originally? Who's there in the beginning to observe? So by its very nature now, the, the, the investigation of origins is different than what we normally associate with the scientific method. What we think of when we think of the scientific method, and I'm going to take some of you back to days that may trigger, may trigger bad memories for you, in a biology lab, you know, dissecting stuff and formaldehyde and, and all of that. And I remember doing that when I was in high school, and the girls would always get squeamish. And, you know, the boys would always make sure they got more squeamish by stuff that we did. But you're, you're looking at something under a microscope, you're dissecting something, and you're, you're doing these, these very kinds of things. You're observing, you're testing, you're repeating. That's what most of us think of when we think of science. But origin, by definition, occurs once. So we're not dealing with science as it's commonly understood. That last paragraph, a helpful distinction in this regard is to differentiate between two kinds of science, forensic and operation. What we normally think of when we think of the scientific method and being in the, in the lab and looking under a microscope and dissecting and all of that, that's what we would call operation science. That is looking, observing, testing how stuff operates, how stuff works, and I'm able to look at how it works. But then there's another kind of science that is forensic science. Operation science is what we normally mean by that word of science. It's consistent with the scientific method as it deals with how things operate. Forensic science, on the other hand, deals with historical occurrences, things that happened in the past. We look at the evidence in the present in order to arrive at a hypothesis about what happened in the past. Medical examiners are specialists in forensic science. Why? Because when the medical examiner's office gets a body brought and they have to do an examination of that, they're looking by its very nature uh, at something that happened in the past. They're trying to look at what they have in front of them in the present to make a determination about what happened in the past. They didn't observe what happened when, and forgive me, but when this person was murdered, when this person was shot, they weren't there. They weren't able to observe that. So they're engaging in forensics. They're looking at something that happened in the past. And they're looking at the evidence they have in the present to make extrapolate backwards. And so they make determinations about entry wound and exit wound to determine how far the person was away, what kind of weapon was used, all of that kinds of stuff. And that's the kind of thing that we are doing in origin science. So it is, it, is, it is not the same as operation science. Now, that's important because, as I said at the very beginning of this, we don't all have our own sets of facts. You know, I don't come into a, a lab. An evolutionist doesn't come into a lab. A creation scientist does not come into a lab and look under a microscope and, and say there's different stuff there. It is what it is. They observe it. They make observations. They, they make notations. And, and, so, and they test it and so on. That's observation science, operational science. That's normally what we mean when we speak of the scientific method. But in, in origins, you're talking about a particular type of, of science. Science for which no one was there to observe. 
And you're taking what you have in the present and you're extrapolating to the past. Now, can you see how important the lenses that you bring to that task are? When you make a determination about a fossil that's in front of you and how old it is. If you have a naturalistic worldview that everything originated from from nature, that everything in the universe is matter, is material, then that's going to affect the way you date that particular fossil, the way you go back. But if you're someone who believes in the possibility of supernatural intervention, then this, then this bone doesn't necessarily have to be millions of, of years old. That a creator could have created it in a relatively recent time period, and you want to look at for evidence of that possibility. And you'll entertain evidence for that possibility. Now, the alternative world, you won't even entertain that, that possibility. Now, I submit to you that there are numerous, numerous, dozens of dating methods that contradict the evolutionary hypothesis. Literally dozens of dating methods. But the only dating methods that those who come with an evolutionary worldview, a naturalistic worldview, will allow are those that fit the evolutionary uh, conclusion. And so especially in forensic science, your worldview plays a role in how you view the data that you're looking at and what conclusions that you will allow for. And now lastly on page 22. Macroevolution and the leap of faith. Just as there are two kinds of science, there are also two kinds of evolution. Microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution can be observed as variations occur in different environments. And so, for instance, using chemicals or radiation to induce mutations, that is, changes, scientists have produced fruit flies with purple eyes or white eyes, flies with oversized wings or shriveled wings or even no wings, fly larvae with patchy bristles on their backs or larvae with so many bristles that they resemble, resemble hedgehogs. But with all this experimentation, nothing has ever emerged except odd forms of fruit flies. This is like my favorite thing. Like, you do all of this stuff to these fruit flies. And you get all these weird-looking fruit flies. And all of the stuff that's coming out of these fruit flies is all fruit fly stuff. Now, that's microevolution. You're watching mutations occur when you zap something into a different environment with you know tons of radiation, and you see what happens. And weird things happen. And so we all agree with that. Look at that. Weird things happen. Now, if you're an evolutionist, here's what you've, you've got to be able to do, though. You've got to somehow come up with some missing link somewhere where a fruit fly or a, or a chimp or something grows something that's not fruit fly stuff or not chimp stuff, right? Because one species is to have evolved from another. And for all of the time, according to the evolutionary theory that we have, we should be tripping over these intermediate forms. Just absolutely, you should find them, you know, when you're in your backyard. You know, just planting a tree. Look at that. They should be everywhere. And here's the thing. We can't find them. We just can't find them. The The best we can do is make drawings on what we think they would look like if we actually found them. That's what's in your science textbook. A drawing of what we think it would look like if we found it. 
Most of the time when you go to a museum, you go to the Field Museum in Chicago, which I've been to. Most of the time, these are, are replicas of what they think it looked like if we had actually seen one put intact. So you don't have these traditional forms anywhere, and when you see in a micro way mutations occur, that does you no good as long as it continues to be fruit fly weirdness. It has to be fruit fly weirdness added to some other kind of weirdness so that you have this transitional transitional form. The experiments, middle of that paragraph, have never produced a new type of insect. Mutations alter the details in existing structures, eye color, wing size, but do not lead to the creation of new ones. The fruit flies have remained fruit flies. Further, the minor changes observed do not accumulate to create major changes. The principle, which is at the heart of macroevolution, that's like big evolution, that's amoeba to man evolution. So the fact that you can observe a fruit fly becoming uh, deformed in no way supports the macroevolutionary idea that we have come into existence by mutations and changes over time from amoeba to man, which is macroevolution. One can observe, last sentence there, microevolution without extrapolating to macroevolution. Now, if you'll keep those two things in mind, it will help you as you think about science, that there are two kinds of science, operation science and forensic science, and then there are two kinds of evolution, micro and macro. And in both of those, the facts are simply the facts, and we all look at the same facts, but we all look at those same facts through different spectacles, and those spectacles are the worldview that you bring to the task. Now, we are, if you are able to come for our first hour, we are in the opening chapter of the Bible. So if next week you come for our 9.30 hour, we'll continue our study in how the Bible says that the world was created. And one of the things that we will be dealing with beginning next week is the days of creation. That The Bible teaches that God created the world in six, in six days. Now, what is that? What is, does the Bible literally mean that, that God created the world within a week? And we will see the answer to that from a biblical standpoint. But for here, for now, you've had the groundwork laid to show that there is nothing in science that would contradict what the Bible teaches regarding that. Okay? Let's pray, and we'll ask the Lord to bring us back together next week. Father, we thank you for this day and the blessings of this day, the opportunity to honor mothers and women in general. We pray that this would be a day of celebration for them, that their families would, would honor them, that if they're married, their spouses would especially uh, praise them and honor them for the, the role that they uh, carry out and the calling that they have heeded from you. And Lord, uh, we thank you as well that we, all of us, have been able to worship you and learn of you and in both of these hours. And we thank you that we're able to look at your world and interpret your world through the lens that you have provided us, having been made in your image. Help us to recognize, Lord, that we have to make a conscious choice in order to deny the obvious. And yet in our sin, that is what people do, and that renders us without excuse. And so we are, on the one hand, saddened at what has happened to humanity and what has happened to those who you designed to reflect you back to you as your image bearers. And yet at the same time, we are profoundly grateful that you are remaking us into the image of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have opened our eyes so that we can see the world as, as it is, based upon the truth and the lens that you give us through your word. 
Help us to go this week then and to contemplate these things, to see every every proposition with which we are presented, every phenomenon that we observe. Help us to see it through the lens of the God who made us and made it. And may we please you in all of our actions and reactions. We ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.